MST10. I'm Ewan, and if you are a regular listener, you will know that we invite a guest on to talk us through a movement, a scene, or a genre of music of their choice, and we play 10 songs. Um, if you're listening on a normal pod player, um, you're not going to hear any tunes, so I strongly recommend you go over to our homepage, which is at infrequency.co.uk, or our Mixcloud, mix which is at mixcloud.com slash temp fans previous episodes i'm going to do a big list because i like doing the big list um just if you've come to this for the first time we have done um the hoboken sound in new jersey uh with ben zimmer we did um manchester rafters live gigs uh around about 1980 with paul hanley we did sort of 70s 90s soul funk acid jazz with zoe von hess we did new york no wave with sharia moore we did noise rock with jr moore's Riot Girl with Sarah Marcus, um, Protest and Protest Songs with Chris Thorpe Tracy, and the last two, which haven't, which are not out as I say this, but will be out by the time you listen to this. Um, we've got one on Britpop and one on New York Disco. Now, joining me today is not one, but two guests. Um, I, I invited one and, you know, he brought his mate, so we'll, we'll see how that works. Um, and they are the co-hosts of the, well, I'm going to say the only Smash Hits pod, podcast, because when I Google Smash Hits podcast, you, you guys came up, um, <laughs> the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Also, um, Charity Shop Classics, which is on, I know it's on Mixcloud, but which radio station is it on? It's on All FM, a community station broadcasting from Manchester. Perfect. Thank you. And also, um, Glossop Record Club. We'll put all the links in the doobly-doo down below. Um, there's lots of really good uh, stuff, all music-based, which is why it's great to have you two guys on. And you two guys are. We have Gavin Hogg. Hello, Gavin. Howdy doody. And Simon Galloway. Hi, Simon. Hello there. Um, if you listen to either this pod or our sister pod, uh, Temporary Fandoms, where we cover entire discographies, you will recognise Gavin's voice when he joined us for two episodes on Love about a year ago. That's right, yeah. Um, and Simon's new to me, so um, we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> um, so the last two episodes we've released um, was Britpop, which is Let's say, let's be honest, the 90s and 70s New York disco. Um, I, f- I feel there's a gap in the middle there that we need to cover. Um, Simon, what are we doing today? What's the movement or the scene or the genre that we're going to look at? Uh, well, I don't know if this is a movement scene genre or just era. Um, and, and that just kind of messes up the whole concept. But this is, we're looking at um, the 80s, um, largely because Gavin and I do the gig carousel of pop. We're looking at smash hits. And we largely look at issues of smash hits from the 1980s. So um, after much discussion, uh, we've gone for something that, that we're calling 80s pop nuggets, but it, it went through various uh, names and, and things. I think it initially started off as um, wonky pop, 
Gav, I'm trying to... I liked, I liked the phrase wonky pop because I didn't know what it meant. Yeah, so Gav, do you, want, do you want to explain wonky pop to us? Well, so that was yours. I'll, I'll, I'll try. I think for me, the, the basic idea for this was to, because uh, as we've already discussed, Cy and I do um, the Giddy Carousel of Pop, which takes old issues of Smash It's mainly from the 1980s. And doing those, we've come across lots of kind of interesting singles that don't make it onto the normal kind of best of 80s comps that you know now that I'm now that's what I call the 80s kind of things that you'd see you know where it'd be full of Duran Duran and Culture Club and Frankie Goes to Hollywood but actually there's lots of really interesting kind of strange singles that came out it was an incredibly fertile time for pop music I think the whole decade really um and so it was really a way of just trying to represent some of some examples from that so I don't know if I can be any more specific than that but yeah, tunes that were almost all of them were quite big hits, but have probably been a little bit forgotten and are in need of uh, being listened to and talked about again. I think. Yeah, you said you said yeah, you said you won't find any of these uh, songs on you know your, your regular eighties pop radio station. I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that thought, yeah. and I'm gonna come back to that and one of the tracks later on when I went, but this is massive. Mm. Who doesn't know this track? Um, also, when this list came through, um, because I, I basically I reach out to guests and I go, do what you want. And they um and ah and stress over it, way more stress than I thought would ever actually be on these things. And then they stress over the actual 10 songs, which which apparently is a nightmare to do. Um, but then I remember thinking, okay, what? Which, which 80 songs would I have? And I wrote my own list and none of them. None of them were on the on here, so I'm very disappointed there was no Kid Creole and the Coconuts. I was very disappointed there was no New Shoes, and especially I was very disappointed that there wasn't the first seven inch single I ever bought, which was "Let's Go All the Way" by Sly Fox. I was gutted, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> gutted. Um, maybe I'll do a spin off when I just introduce interview myself. Um, so um, because there's two of you, what we're going to try and do is basically tag team. I think we're taking turns um, and. The standard thing is we're going to talk about the songs and we're going to talk around the songs. Um, who's first? I believe it's me. Gavin, what are you bringing? What are you bring, um, this is not the first time I'm going to ask this. What are you bringing to the table and I'm why? I'm bringing to the table Friend or Foe by Adamant. Why, you say? And why, yes. <laughs> why? <laughs> Just, I think it's a, um, an overlooked song. It was a top ten hit. I think it went to number nine in um, September 82. It was a follow-up to Goody Two Shoes, which was a number one single, obviously, after Adam and the Ants broke up. It's a very strange song. It kind of takes a lot of the template of Adam and the Ants, the sort of Burundi dr- uh, drumming beat and the twangy spaghetti western guitars from Marco. But it's a lot less obviously poppy than, say, uh, Ant Music or Stand and Deliver, Kings of the Wild Frontier, stuff like that. It, it goes down all these odd little kind of musical cul-de-sacs, and then there's like an... Ab- abrupt 360 turn and he, he uh, no is it three no 360 is all the way around isn't it 180 goes in another direction <laughs> or 270 degrees somewhere else um it starts with this kind of odd sort of drunken kind of trumpet sound which is an odd way to start the track the title of the song is only sung a couple of times in the intro and it's never sung again um and like i say it's just full of sort of stops and starts it's very strange and a bit kind of schizophrenic and um i just think it's yeah it's really overlooked because it's 
I mean, Sai messaged me um, a few days ago and said this has become a bit of an earworm for him. And I think it is one of those songs that when you listen to it a bit, it really kind of gets in there. I don't know if you found that, Ewan, but... Well, well I, I, I listened to them all earlier on today, and um, at one point my brain went, am I listening to the James Bond theme from uh, Doctor No, the sort of weird sort of twangy guitar? But most of the tracks that we're going to go through today, I went, I can't remember what that is. I have no idea. Oh, it's this one. <laughs> um, and this was, this was one of those. Um, I, I must have heard it. I'd forgotten it existed. Um, it sounds like a B-side. Okay. A bit to me. But that's in that sort of looking back at the, when you look back at someone's big hits and you go, oh, this was also a big hit. Was it? Um, there's a reason <laughs> why I think it was, it, it was overlooked. Maybe it was the wonkiness. Um, I don't know. That was, it, it washed over me a little bit. Um, but it was, it was interesting. It was nice to sort of hear it again. Um, I agree with you about the sort of stop, start random nature of it a little bit. Um, it's, it's a lot of eighties pop hits. When you look back, you go, this was a hit. How is how is this a hit? This isn't, you know, it's it's catchy, but it's also a bit weird. And there's stuff, the, the the production values compared to a lot of modern pop are odd, what, to say the least. I think that's a thread that, that's probably going to run through quite a lot of the songs that, that we're looking at today. Um, that there is that oddness to them. I, mean, I certainly think that this song um, is is it's not a song; it's more of a mantra. Because it's just the, 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 Adam sings the same thing pretty much over and over again, but he sings it in that strange sort of, you know, the, the, the way that he sings his words, he sort of stretches them out and pulls them in different directions. A bit like, you know, Mark Bolan or Brian Ferry would have done, who of course were, were his idols. Um, and was this, so you said this was after Goody Two Shoes. Um, what was, when was his peak? Was it? Before or after, I can't. I can't place years. Well, I'm terrible at years. Well, he's, like the the peak years was, you know, from sort of Kings of the Wild Frontier and Amp Music was 1980, and then Stand and Deliver, Prince Charm in 81, and then um, he went solo in 82. So he had a very short time at the top, but it was a very kind of intense time. And I think the lyrics reflect that a little bit. Um, you know, there's lines about. Uh, I tried and I tried, tried to take care of my insides. And I think the songs are a lot to do with kind of the pressures of fame and um, the experiences he'd had over the last few years. And yeah, Sai talking about Mark Bolan in, in the lyrics as well. There's, uh, there's a great line that really sounds like a kind of Bolan kind of line. He says, a pirouetting, high, sorry, a pirouetting, high-kicking, thigh-slapping cruiser, a hip-grinding, spellbinding, clean-cut seducer, which I think is it's just a great kind of glam pop kind of, uh, lyric to put in there but and you're right as well you and I, th- I think it is more of a b-side in a lot of ways i mean it is catchy but coming on the back of goody two shoes which was a, a big number one this isn't a big follow-up record like that it's not in terms of pop level you know it's not like goody two shoes and i mean this is really the start of his it was kind of ever decreasing circles after this this got to number nine and then Desperate but Not Serious, I think didn't even quite break the top 40. The single after that, I think, got to 41. And then after that, it was occasional sporadic forays into the charts, but um, it was definitely uh, no on more, the decline. No more um, big uh, cameos from Diana Dawes in his pop videos there. <laughs> no more Dawes, no. <laughs> the door was shut. 
<laughs> Ouch. Oi. Um, well, I, I, I'm going to leave that in. Um, it's probably a good time uh, as ever. Um, if I'm only going to say this once. Um, if you are listening on your pod player, your Apple or your Spotify, you're going to hear about a 10-second bloop, bloop, bloop. You're listening on our home page or our mixed cloud. You're going to hear friend or foe. All right, so moving on to the next track, which is which is one of yours, Simon. Um, I think there's an interesting thing about a lot of '80s pop, particularly early '80s pop. That I mean, Adam and Ants, you could you could even you could say there's sort of punky elements and and, and reggae elements coming in. Um, we've got a lot of other genres that sort of bleed in a little bit to what we would classify as pop. I mean, remember, 80s pop is from Stock Aitken and Waterman to New Romantics, and there's a whole big, big umbrella in there. And now we've got one that sort of comes out of two-tone a little bit. What have we got, Simon? Uh, we've got The Beat and Too Nice to Talk To, which uh, a single uh, that they released at the end of 1980 and uh, hit the big time in the beginning of 1981. Um, and The Beat were... Was it Dave Whalen? Dave? Dave Wakelin, Rankin Roger. Dave Wakelin. Yeah, uh, Saxa on saxophone. And uh, and Andy Cox and David Steele, who went on to Find Young Cannibals. Um, I have one really crap beat anecdote. I was living in Santa Barbara when the millennium happened, and Dave Wakelin lives in, or lived at the time in Santa Barbara. So they went, what we'll do is we'll put, as they called it, the the English beat on a big gig uh, on the beach at midnight. Um, but also what all the bars did was decide, oh, well, we don't want people wandering around. We want to keep them in the bar. So they, all the bars charged about $50 to get in. So basically people went to a bar and they didn't leave. We left about 10 past 12, wandered down to the beach, and there was just Dave Wakelin just swearing at an empty crowd <laughs> on the beach, uh, looking very, very, very pissed off. Um, for me, the, the beat are sooner or later, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, this was this was also one of those that I went, oh, I don't know this. Oh, yeah, I do. I do know this. I do know this. Um, why? Why, Simon? I'm going to ask why a lot today. Yeah, why? why? Um, <laughs> well, this is uh, a song that obviously I'll have heard it on the, at the time. Uh, as, as a kid, you know, I'd have been seven years old when this came out. I was a top of the pops obsessive and listening to the chart on a Sunday afternoon on the radio. And uh, I think it was probably around about this time that my dad got a Dixon's own brand ghetto blaster type thing. I'd record the songs that I wanted off the top 40. But I'll be honest, it was one that I'd forgotten about until probably about three or four years ago, and it was featured on an episode of the Chart Music podcast to look at old episodes of Top of the Pops, go through it song by song, and kind of deconstruct the, the whole episode. And And this came, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've forgotten all about this. And since then, I've been kind of obsessed by it um, and kind of reevaluated the beat. Um, you know, I think like a, a lot of people, I'd, I'd sort of written them off. You know, I think the, sh- uh, the, spe- them the shadows and the, sh- the specials overshadowed them <laughs> uh, in quite a big way uh, and, and the whole two-tone movement. And obviously um, the beat re- released their first single on two-tone, but then set up their own label, Go Feet. And, um, and I think they really um, expanded their sound as they went on. I think um, the, the specials did the similar sort of thing, but there's also always the, the, the lyrical part of um, the specials. I think we're always kind of looking down and, and, and just sneering at people a little bit. 
Whereas I think the beat and their lyrics are a lot more relatable. You know, it can be you know, too nice to talk to, just about being a bit nervous about going to talk to a girl or mirroring the bathroom about mental health. Um, so I think that there's something a little more expansive about what the beat did and, and how they took their sound on. Uh, but this song in particular, I've become really um, obsessed with it. I'm just trying to work out how they did it. How does it hang together? What is it that, that makes it work as a song? So I'm a musician. I've written songs over the years and been in bands and recorded songs and stuff. But I don't know how they did this one. Um, you know, it, it, I think what, what holds it together is, is the bass, which is still kind of slightly dubby, but it's also a, a little bit funky. But there's no real guitar chords on there. You wouldn't be able to kind of thrash this out on an acoustic guitar and and you know and still make it sound a bit like the song. So there's that kind of spindly guitar that's going on throughout it, and then the soulful sax that comes through. And actually, I think Dave Wakelin as a vocalist, very underrated, a really good soulful voice. And when you combine Rankin Roger with that, I think they they contrast but also complement each other really well. Um, so I think you know, they, they were moving in, in a really interesting way. And I think this song kind of sums, sums up what the beat are all about to me in that it's a really, you know, kind of quite abstract song and that you've got the bass line kind of driving it. There's almost sort of disco drums going on. And like I said, the spindly guitar working its way through. Um, and I think, uh, and, and percussion on it as well. Um, but it all just works as a as a really great pop song. I think that that's another thing from this era. I think from from about kind of post punk seventy eight through to eighty five, you do get kind of unconventional songs that um, that hit the charts that on the surface just sound like a normal pop song. But once you start digging into them, you think, what's making this work? What's hanging? What's making this hang hang together? And I, 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 I was don't know what think, it is. I was thinking of that the other day. I was thinking that the other day, something similar. Um, I can't remember why, but Banana Rama, no, Fun Boy Three and Banana Rama sort of came on Spotify, and I was like, Banana Rama were amazing, but if you look back at them and you think, I mean, I thought they looked, I still think they looked cool, and I still like the sort of shonkiness of of, of, of the vocals and all of that, but looking back at them through a stock Aitken and Waterman or even like a modern Billie Eilish sort of filthy, they're going, how did you become so big? It's also nice to be able to watch old episodes of Top of the Pops and, and get positive memories uh, flashing out of them because a lot of the 80s pop, Top of the Pops is a lot of, oh, God, yeah, him. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I think with Bananarama, um, pre-Stock Aiken and Waterman, so when Siobhan was was still with them, I think very relatable and, um, you know, interesting to watch. You know, they, they weren't very slick, but they're also, you know, quite regulars in smash hits, um, which always brought out the the interesting um, size of pop stars' personalities, maybe exaggerated them a little bit. But I think that's that's what made made Banana Armor interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gavin, what, what, what were you? Uh, I mean, I, I have to say, I listened to this day, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh god, I do hate saxophone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing I'm the only one. Um, I, I know this is one isn't one of your choices, and I am going to decide at the end who gave me the best choices. So no pressure. <laughs> but um, what what were your thoughts on the beat? I mean, do you remember the beat? Yeah, um, yeah, very much so. Were they were they over by the shadows? Well, they, <laughs> yeah, they they possibly. Um, 
I think they were a really interesting band. They were kind of like a grown-up madness in a way. You know, they they were kind of it felt like they're the elder brother of madness, a bit a little bit more serious perhaps, and um, singing about you know, as Sai said, singing about the world of nightclubs and drinking and trying to chat girls up and you know issues around mental health say with mirror in the bathroom which is another great song um and this song i mean again without wanting to repeat everything i said but the, the sound of this song is just amazing there's a lot of spare room in there and things just glide around so beautifully and it's got a, like a lovely melody and that little guitar line is amazing um and it's just a really really catchy tune but again something very unusual and, and strange about it and not something that has been um, written by a committee or anything. You know, it's kind of, it just feels like it's kind of organically come out from somewhere and it exists and it's strange and, and um, yeah, it sounds great, but it's really hard to pin down exactly what it is about it that makes it so special or so shadows. Yeah, I think it's it's all about restraint, I think, in, in this one. that It starts off at a certain level. And it never really launches off, uh, and, and like there's nothing really kind of slaps you in the face, whatever, or sticks out until it gets to the chorus. And you get Rankin Rogers uh, harmonies coming in, and then you get Sax's little saxophone refrain that come, comes in. But you and come on, what's wrong with the saxophone? I just got. I've got a thing about sax. I don't is know it, why. Is it all, is it um, all sax? I mean, can you can you handle like jazz stuff, uh, or, or is it? Or, or- okay, okay, proper. I, I have got into classic sort of Miles Davis, you know, type jazz over the last few years because I've moved into my my late forties. So that's yeah, yeah. that's what happens. <laughs> um, Kenny G. But I don't know. There's a there's a particular Kenny G. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. or um, Baker Street type. Sax thing. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just sax never works no, for me. I, I know, but, I know um, you mean, it in, in 80s pop, I think it did become the most abused instrument uh, as the decade wore on and it, it came to stand. This is something that, uh, particularly doing, doing the Smash Hits podcast and when we do the late 80s episodes and we do do playlists for, for each episode and, and just, just so, you know, so we can um, kind of listen to the music of the time and get ourselves in that frame of mind. But I, I, I trying to work out what it signifies. Um, and it's kind of a replacement for guitar solos, but I think it's kind of there to signify kind of like a authenticity, but also a bit of mm, sex and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and it's, 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 this is yeah. classy. And, and it's done the saxophone <laughs> a great disservice. So I think with the beat and the way that saxa uses the, the, the saxophone in this is more auth- genuinely authentic it's coming from a, a real place of, of kind of like, you know, doo-wop, R&B, rock and roll, but also ska and, and, and Jamaican music. And that's how they integrated the saxophone. And I think Roxy Music and David Bowie have got a lot to answer for <laughs> in terms of how the saxophone was adopted uh, by bands uh, in the 80s and how it then came on to be abused. But I think how Roxy and Bowie use the saxophone is more to do with rock and roll and R&B and things. And, and it's a good use of the saxophone. So I, I think... I think yeah. it's. An, I think it's. I think for me, it might be an overkill thing. Like, for example, late 90s Southern Californian ska yeah. bands. For two years, I couldn't <laughs> live anything with that. Yeah, some form of brass. Like, oh, I played the tuba in the in the school band. Now I'm in a ska band. Let's have a tuba yeah. in it. Um, and, and for me, it's just it's one of those things that I could just 
happily put in the time capsule yeah. and, ne- and never bring it back. But it's probably time for the listener to decide. Yeah, but I think just going back to, to, to the beat for, for just a second and that, that song, I think there is there is a kind of funk to it, a wonky kind of funk to it, almost like a, a disco element that comes through, you know, with, with the way that the hi-hats used and the way that the, the, the drums and percussion kind of um, drive the song forward along with the bass. And, and in that sense, it's kind of almost akin with um, a certain ratio and, and, and the pop group who are around about the same time. Also leading on to bands like um, Pigbag, you can see how you can hear how you know this leads on to uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Pigbag. You can hear how Haircut 100 did um, um, Boy Meets Girl, Favourite Shirts, ABC with Tears Are Not Enough, Spandau Ballet with Chant Number One, those sorts of things, that, that kind of brick funk thing that was happening in the early 80s. But you can also draw a line to that with um, the No Wave sort of thing with ESG. And the way that they, they were using the, the, the high hats and, you know, in a very more kind of lo-fi sort of way. But there's all these these things um, that, that kind of uh, run through too nice to talk to. And they were just kind of slightly ahead of the curve, I think. You know, um, as 1981 progressed, we did get those those other songs um, that I just mentioned. But I have to say that I, I did a DJ set a couple of years ago and somebody requested this song. I don't know how this is going to go down. It went down an absolute storm. So, uh, yeah, highly recommend dropping it into a DJ set if you're playing through a very loud PA system. Okay, there's there's a couple of tracks from the 80s that sound very 80s. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. Um, The rise of the use of electronic synths and particularly either all instrumental or almost completely instrumental tracks. I mean, we've got, um, was it Yellow, The Race? That's one that sort of pops into my head. And this next track, when I saw it on the list, I went, I know the name, but I don't know the song. Oh, of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) So um, thank you for that. Um, This is yours, isn't it, it, Gavin? What have we got? (laughs) Rocket by Herbie Hancock. From 1983, again, a top 10 single went to number eight, but it's kind of a little bit forgotten, even though I think it really pointed the way to a lot of stuff that would come after it. Uh, is it, before before you carry on, is it forgotten or is it is it one of those that people, everyone remembers the tune and when it comes on, everyone knows what it is, but nobody can tell you who did it? I don't know. Only the listeners can tell us that. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. You could. Be, I am the voice. You of the could listener. be right. You could be right. Um, I mean, I think we can all agree that one of the high points of rapping in the eighties was Roland Rat's rat rapping and and scratching. But that came out in eighty four. <laughs> this came out a year earlier than that. So you know, it was. There's definitely a direct link to be drawn there between Herbie and uh, Roland Rat, and then kind of going on further. I think pump up the volume, which was uh, when was that eighty seven. Yeah, I think. That sounds about yeah. right. Yeah, and, yeah, And I um, think if you listen to Rocket, you can definitely hear uh, links with Pump Up the Volume and, and then, you know, leading into um, Acid House. So, I mean, Hancock was 43 when um, when he co-wrote this. Obviously, he'd, he'd worked, you were mentioning Miles Davis before, in your sax tirade. <laughs> and uh, Herbie. That's a great name for sax a podcast. tirade. <laughs> um, sax rant. Herbie had worked with uh, with Miles Davis and then co-wrote this with Bill Laswell making making use of 
the uh, the new technology that was coming out and you know scratching and drum machines but also i think what's really interesting about this is and i don't know how exactly how to pronounce it uh, the african drums it bata bata b a t and then an a with a kind of accent thing on it um that's the sound you can as well as the drum machine that you can hear in there which you know as i was mentioning before pump up the volume um i think was an influence on that um i just think it's it's a really experimental tune um as i said earlier it really kind of points the way forward uh to what would come later quite groundbreaking and yet it was still a big hit and i know the main melody in it is a little bit cheesy you know that but i still kind of like it you know <laughs> oh it, it, it it's in my head it, it's one of those my brain has enough space for either um, this Herbie Hancock track or um, Axel F from Beverly Hills Nine. <laughs> this is better. But, but no, at, at the moment, they're both, it's starting on bam, 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 and my brain is just going all over the place. <laughs> um, it's interesting you said that this sort of led to other things that linked back to uh, Miles Davis. In, the, um, in our episode on um, disco in, in, in New York, in my head, what disco was, was this disco sound. But a lot of it was sort of soul tracks and gospel tracks that sort of led on to something else. And disco being basically the precursor to dance music and, and house music that came later. And this is this is an uh, this is another one mm. of those those things. It, eight, what did you say, 83, 84? Yeah. July 83. And it really keeps the energy, you know, it, it starts off and it, it doesn't let up, you know, it's uh, very different to the Adamant one, which, you know, goes into a lot of different directions. Uh, but, you know, as well, it's got the, uh, the samplers, like a guitar sample from Led Zeppelin in there. Um, and, yeah, it's just like a, a big energetic rush. It's, it's very frenetic. You know, you can't listen to it too much. But every now and again, it, it hits the spot and it's, um, you're like, oh, yeah. This is actually really good and really interesting. And what, what did you make of it, Sai? Well, uh, I'm, it's one that I remember from the time, and I think it means uh, probably means something different to us to what it does um, to people in in the states because this was a, a big song on MTV because uh, Godly and Cream did the video, um, but I think Herbie Hancock only appears in it on a via a TV screen. So there's all these like weird mechanical legs popping out of a wardrobe so i can't i can't remember it now but that was pure they did that video so that they could get it on mtv when at a time when mtv weren't really playing black artists so it was a, a real kind of what they call a crossover hit but i think it's interesting because you know, i used to work at a jazz radio station so uh, you know I've, I've encountered herbie's music over the years and it had a hit in the late 70s i thought it was you which was he's kind of like a, a disco sort of thing but he did this album in 81 um, I can't remember what it's called now, but it does a track on it with um, uh, Adrian Ballou, who played with David Bowie, Frank Zappa, Talking Heads. Uh, and he was experimenting with drum machines on that. As a, the, the Adrian Ballou track, I think it's called Twilight Clown. And it's got a real kind of uh, My Life and the Bush of Ghosts, uh, Tom Tom Club sort of sound to it. And I think it's interesting that he linked up with Bill Laswell for this because he'd been part of the no wave scene in, in New York. It's part of a band called Material. They've been on a Z Records compilation. Um, uh, Mutant Disco, that's the, that's a compilation. A track called Busting Out, which, uh, again, discovered it through doing the, the Giddy Carousel of Pop podcast. And that, you know, 
took my head off that one did. Uh, so I think it's a real interesting uh, combination of, you know, Herbie Han- Hancock was moving in that direction and then linking up with Bill Laswell and, and Michael Benhorn from uh, Material just kind of moved it to the, to the next level. Um, so I think it's, yeah, just interesting, just knowing a bit, bit more about the, the, the background of it. And, and it was, you know, in that time when uh, hip hop uh, was still quite a novel thing, uh, it was a big, you know, big sound. And this came, you know, came out after Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren. Uh, so for me, you know, it kind of draws those, those lines. But again, it's a New York thing. Sometimes, um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's all about the guests. It's not about me. Um, but as a as a, as a late forties uh, white cis gendered male, I demand to have my opinion heard on a podcast. Um, current pop wonder, self esteem. Um, if you if, if if you're listening and you haven't heard, heard her album. Um, Go and listen to it. Um, she's from Sheffield. She's a Sheffield Wednesday fan. I'm a Sheffield Wednesday fan, and so are our next artist. That is the worst segue ever, but how many times am I going to get to say Sheffield Wednesday on a music podcast? Um, Simon, yes. which Sheffield Wednesday fan do we have next? Uh, we have the Human League uh, with their 1981 single, Love Action. And you might think, well, this, this was a big hit. And you'd be right, it got to number three, but I think um, it's totally uh, overshadowed by Don't You Want Me. So this is kind of like its, it's forgotten cousin, uh, but from the same album. And uh, the Human League were a big band. Was it? Which one was first? Uh, which, which came uh, first? Love Action came first. Well, actually, Sound of the Crowd was the first single from Dare. Then this was the second single. Uh, Open Your Heart was the third single. And then Don't You Want Me, which the band didn't even like. That's why it was the last track on the album. Some bright spark at the record company said, no, no, this, this is going to be, you know, this this is this be, be a good single. And uh, they didn't want to put it out, but got to number one for them in, in the UK and uh, over in the States as well. But um, the Human League uh, were a big one for me because uh, they were from my hometown. I'm from Sheffield. I'm neither a Sheffield Wednesday nor Sheffield United supporter. Don't do football. Um, but it was the first band that I was aware of coming from a place. And that place just happened to be my hometown. Before that, pop music and, and pop singers were just people and things that existed. You know, they, they didn't come from anywhere. They just existed. They were on top of the pops or they're in smash it's or they were on the radio. But um, earlier on in 1981, one, one of my brothers had come home with the first Human League album, Reproduction. He said, these are from Sheffield. And I'm like, what? Bands come from somewhere? Uh, and I kind of got got a bit obsessed by them, uh, and, and just really got got into their stuff. So and so, this was the first thing that I was aware of uh, coming out uh, after I'd become aware of the band, and went out and bought the, the single straight away. And again, you know, it, it was just, just accepted as a, a pop song from the time. But when I come back to it, where did you buy your sing? Where where did you buy your singles? I got from? this one from WH Smiths on Fargate. <laughs> Um, in Sheffield, but yeah, wherever you know, wherever would sell records. Uh, so there was, you know, obviously Woolworths, WH Smiths. Um, there were a couple of branches of Bradley's Records, which I think was more of a, like a Yorkshire uh, chain of record stores. I've never, I have never heard of Bradley's. I've still, I've still got a bag somewhere, Bradley's bag somewhere. But they, yeah, they, they were just like little um, shops that just you know popped up here and there, just yeah, all over um, town as we called it, Sheffield City Centre, and also 
the ex-jukebox racks and the you know the post offices and news agents that we'd find across the land. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I distinctly remember. I, I do remember. I, I do remember buying a, um, a cassette tape album of an Ultravox out from a, a news agents. Well, me and my mum were down in London visiting some relatives. And it was obviously a bootleg yeah. <laughs> uh, when I think about it now, because the sound quality and the photocopy was shocking. But just the fact that I'd go in to the place where I would buy sweets and buy music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. You, you'd buy records from wherever you could find them. And I was, you know, buying stuff from sort of being sort of four years old. Um, but coming back to this, uh, I think it was probably about the, the early 2000s. And uh, for, for a long time, I was kind of allergic to 80s music. Didn't want to know about it. You know, I bought all these you know, records and being into all these bands at the time and then just absolutely disowned it all, but kept all the records. And in, in the 2000s, I started just gradually coming back to them. And the, the Human League were one of those bands that I came back to first, initially through the first two albums, which, you know, I was like, well, that's the proper Human League. You know, of course, I would say that being a music snob. But listening to this again, it was like, it's a, it's a collection of odd sounds it's like you know oh, what's this sound what's this button do and then they've sort of assembled it into a pop song somehow how, how they've done it i don't know yeah a bass line is just like doom 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 it's you know there's nothing cons- constant or consistent about it you've just got the the, the the kick drum like the four to the floor all the way through uh, but there's a sparseness to it whilst at the same time uh, being quite busy, so you've got the, the the a range of sounds that kind of span the frequencies. So from from the the, the drums and the bass line holding uh, down there at the bottom to sort of the more middle frequencies and sort of synths going on there to the high end um, wibbly sounds and, and the um, sort of the, the sounds that are re- recreating the hi hat and things like that. So you've got this this range of sounds that go through it. So it is actually quite busy, but they all occupy their own frequencies within that. And so it actually makes it count, sound quite quite sparse. Uh, and there's there's an economy to it. Uh, and I think there's a there's a documentary about um, Sheffield music from from sort of the mid mid to late seventies up to the early eighties called Made in Sheffield. And it is looking at all the the, the synth bands, you know, Cabaret Voltaire, um, ABC initially started as vice versa and Human League as well. And uh, there's a great bit in that where Phil, Phil Oakey's talking about, you know, punk as their inspiration, but they didn't want to do that. And he said, you know, the punks are there going, you know, oh, look at us, you know, we only know three chords and, and all, all that sort of thing. And Phil Oakey says, yeah, well, we just use one finger. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> They're just one thing, one I'm one thing on the synths, uh, and and but uh, yeah, so um, uh, so I think that's you know that sort of uh, informs, still informing what the Human League were doing at, at this time. But I think importantly for me, this was the first time that I'd seen them. Obviously, not really, you know, they hadn't been on top of the pops. I don't think they may have been on with the sound of the crowd, but I hadn't seen that. So it's the first time I'd seen it. It's the first time I'd seen the hair as well. And so I just just used to look at that that um, the single cover for, for Love Action, just like look at that hair. <laughs> <laughs> but so what would we call? It? I mean, what would would this fit under the the new romantic banner, the proto goth goth punk? It's, what, I, it's a bit of all we, sorts, isn't it? It's kind of new them? romantic. It's kind of synth pop. 
Yeah, I think I think it sits well, most comfortably under under synth pop because there isn't that um, pretentiousness um, that you would associate with um, new romantics mm. uh, or, or, or goths or, or whatever. And I'm yeah. not saying pretentious is a bad thing here. I think pretentiousness with with those scenes are a very good thing and, and, and what what makes you know, what, what it's all about. So yeah, I think synth pop. But yeah, because I th- I think with the sort of new romantics and with people like Gary Newman and the other kind of early adopters of synths, there was often a lot of kind of alienation and and stuff, wasn't there? And songs about aliens and, you know, dystopian nightmarish visions, whatever. But with Human League, and, you know, and if thinking about it, this song in particular, there's a, there's a real warmth and obviously it's love action and there's a humanity in the lyrics, you know, that line about this is Phil talking, I want to tell you what I've found to be true and I believe I believe in love. Um so I think that's what sets it apart from those other, you know, bands that it's kind of similar to, but also they exist in their own little world, I think. Yeah. And also aiming directly for the dance floor with this one. I mean, if you listen to the first two Human League albums, even though there's you know a lot of beats on them, a lot of synths on there, you can't really dance to them. This one, you can absolutely dance to it. So we we previously mentioned um, Buffalo Girls by Malcolm McLaren, um, and we've got another Malcolm McLaren hit uh, next. Um, Gavin, which see in my head, there's only one Malcolm McLaren one, and I think I, I have Buffalo Girls and Double Dutch mixed <laughs> up in my head as one track. <laughs> the Double Buffalo Girls Dutch. Um, so so. Context. I mean, Malcolm McLaren is still is was the big punk impresario. Yeah, he, right? he was He's turning up in our eighties pop. Yeah, it was. I think no one really occupied uh, that space in the culture quite like Malcolm McLaren did. It was a, an unusual um, location he had, really, in the hinterlands of uh, the cultural landscape of the eighties. He'd been obviously the the manager of um, the Sex Pistols in the seventies, and. Um, and very much kind of a, a bet noir figure. Uh, and then only a few years later, he's having big top 10 hit singles and, you know, and Duck Rock was a big album. Uh, and in between that, of course, you know, we mentioned Adamant before. He was sort of pivotal in uh, Adamant becoming a big pop star. He, he Adam paid him, I think, £1,000 in 1979 or 1980 to get some advice after his first album, Where's White Socks, didn't do anything. And... Um, yeah, Malcolm gave him some good advice and helped turn in for Popstar. And then Malcolm nicked the rest of the ants to form Bow Wow Wow to go down the Burundi <laughs> drums and pirate route. But Adam was ultimately more successful. But, you know, he was, yeah, he was a, a, a big figure, even though he was a very peripheral kind of figure at the same time. Um, so, yeah, like I say, he had six top 40 singles. This went to number three. This was bigger than Buffalo Gals, even though perhaps that's better remembered. Um and it's it's a very incongruous song in many ways because you've got the kind of African uh, high life guitar and bass sound with Malcolm McLaren, who's from originally from Stoke Newington, kind of instructing a team of skippers how to skip the double Dutch uh, over the top of it, and then you've got the the Ebonets, the American um, skipping team, kind of throwing in a few words, and you've got the sound of skipping ropes going. You know, it's not really what you would. If you're putting together a blueprint of what's going to make a top three single in 1983, you wouldn't necessarily go with that combination of elements. 
but I think it just works incredibly well. I love the guitar sound at the beginning. I think the swoosh of the skipping ropes, I think that's underused in pop. I can't think of any other records that have got that skipping rope sound, and yet it's a great sound. It just brings a lot of energy and life to it. Um, in terms of sort of the rhythms as well, you know, again, perhaps pointing the way a little bit to, to Graceland and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if it was, I don't know if Paul Simon was a big double Dutch fan, but you know, <laughs> maybe had a little influence. He, he did like to skip. Oh, he, he loved, he loved skipping. Yeah. <laughs> Him and Art Garfunkel used to, used to tear it up down in Greenwich Village. Um, I just think it's a, you know, a song that, that people have forgotten about because they tend to remember Buffalo Gals and that's kind of it. But I, I, when I first heard this song, I just as a as a kid, I just I just loved it because because of that really odd, funny little guitar sound that didn't sound like anything else that we were hearing on Top of the Pops or Top Forty Radio at that time, and probably not really much since, you know. Uh, and it's yeah, it's just really stuck with me. I just think there's something really joyous and infectious about that tune. I remember the video. I think my I mean, unless it's a false memory, my, in my head there's a black and white video. And I've always remember the, 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 the skipping, and there's Malcolm McLaren in a big suit. That's that, that's my memory of, of this video. I, I should have really YouTubed it this <laughs> afternoon, but I'm, um, Simon, um, do you think the skipping ropes are an underused um, instrument or sound sound effect? I mean, how, do you remember the Malcolm McLaren stuff coming I out? Do. The time? I do. I remember sending my mom down to um, the, the Little Virgin. There was a bottom of the uh, the moor in Sheffield City Centre uh, to buy buffalo cows. That's another one that the first time I heard it was like, "What's this?" Um, and I guess what what this shares in common with buffalo cows is that buffalo cows is a it's a square dance, it's a country dance that Malcolm McLaren is still giving out the instruction, but it's over the the, the hip hop beat. And then on this one, he's got, you know, what in the 80s we called world music um, with giving out the instructions for doing doing the double dutch. And I do remember when this song was out, the double dutch being demonstrated on Blue Peter. I don't oh, know if I remember that too. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... I'm this, I mean, looking back through sort of modern eyes, there is a whiff of cultural appropriation about the whole thing. Um, Malcolm McLaren t- telling people how to do something that is not from London is not is not his. You know, when he, in his big colonial suit, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's it. It seems I'm not sure you'd be able to do yeah, it. Yeah, you, ca- you can't um, really reframe this through uh, values of 2022. Otherwise, you know, we'd be you know, cancelling all sorts of things. Paul Simon would be one of those that'd be cancelled. I mean, he went to Jamaica in 1971 and, and made an album with a load of Jamaican musicians. Uh, so, you know, he'd been doing that sort of thing for years. Uh, but I think, yeah, I don't know. What's, what's the rest of the Duck Rock album like, Gav? Do you, do you know it? Is it I don't is have it. Ca- it. I, I have yeah. this single and I have Soweto and, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, don't so have the I get, get the impression that it's just kind of moving through the different styles and picking and choosing from from here and there. And I think the album was it's made with Trevor Horn, wasn't it? And so yeah. I think that's why uh, you know why they managed to blend these styles together so well. And probably why the skipping's in time as well, because Trevor Horn would have got the best skipping rope team <laughs> in the land. Uh, you know, to to, to skip in you know, absolutely bang on time, put it through the fairlight, and just give it a little tweak. 
Um, but no, I think I think it's interesting. It's it's like this this concoction of, of different styles and and putting them together um, to, to to make them work. I think that's more what the experiment was. Certainly, with the two songs or two or three songs that I know from from Duck Rock, rather than you know. Uh, <laughs> viewing it you know from 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 our 2022 vantage point but yeah, i mean think later in the 80s you after paul simon i mean call me al is is pretty much a rip-off of uh you know the bass it's pretty much the same but yeah and when andy kershaw started playing uh the bundu boys and was it the four brothers uh that they would play a lot on uh on his radio one show and then john peel picked up on them you know sort of you know in in, in 86 87 so, but I think for a lot of us, this would have been the first time we would have heard um, South African high life music. Uh, so, yeah, I said at the beginning, I mean, when you said to the list, there was a couple I went, this is way too big to be a pop nugget. And there was a couple I thought I didn't know, but then when I started to listen to them, I, I went, oh, yeah, it's this one. Um, this is one I had never heard of. And when I listened to it, it went, nope, nope. No idea. Um, are you sure this? Are you sure this was a single? Did, is this is this one of your bands? It's Simon? one of my we, bands. What have we got? It's one of my bands. And the, the the more the further away we get in time from it, I also think was this really a single? How on earth did they you know did they pass this? But yeah, it got to number thirteen in nineteen eighty two. What what we've got? We've got Club Country by Associates, and uh, so it was a song that was from their album. Uh, nude was it nude sulk wasn't it sulk that was it yeah from from their album sulk and uh it was a second single um that was from the album so the first one being party fears 2 which had been a big hit earlier on in the year um but this is yeah i remember this at the time i bought it at the time as an ex-jukebox single we had it on a tape in the car that my, my sister went through a phase of recording her favorite songs from the radio and uh she 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 absolutely ruled the tape player in the car she was six years older than me so i didn't argue you know she absolutely bossed it so um yeah so she it was always her tapes that got played and this was one that was on that tape i can always remember at the end of it she she was really good on the pause button so it went straight into um hungry like the wolf by Duran Duran. Oh, that that was a skill. That is that is a skill we don't have exactly, anymore. Yeah. Being able to release or press the pause at the exact nanosecond that the DJ has either stopped talking or is about to talk, and then essentially mixing into the yeah, next it track. Was the perfect segue, and I can never hear Club Country by Associates without hearing the beginning of uh, Hungry Like the Wolf. So it's, a, it's uh, uh, Billy McKenzie's last line in the song, every breath you take belongs to someone there. And then I hear, straight away, straight away, <laughs> every time. But I think, um, yeah, this this song just gets odder by the year. It's, it's pop music made by aliens beamed in from a, another galaxy. Um, I mean, I, I like to picture, you know, as I said, I've played in bands and recorded songs, worked in studios and stuff over the years. So I like to picture sometimes how songs were were made, how they were recorded and try and de- deconstruct them a little bit in my head. You know, just, well, that's that sound and that would have been done by that and that would have been done by that. And I just cannot fathom this one out. Not only that, how, how did they write it? How, how do you write a song like this? What's it even about? I just don't know how this song can exist musically, instrumentally. It's, it's, it's kind of discordant. It's deliberately clashing. It's, I think it's pushing at the extremities of, of what a pop song can be. 
um, you know, the, um, the, the, the Alan Rankin's guitar sounds almost mandolin-like, playing these really odd uh, uh, chords that are clashing against each other. And then Michael Dempsey on bass, who'd, who'd been in The Cure and spent a long, uh, a big period of his summer of 1982 miming bass for Roxy Music. But his bass sounds like it comes from another song, this kind of like insistent thing that's, that's sort of moving throughout it and kind of really, you know, jumping around the, 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 the neck of the bass. Um, and, and then Billy McKenzie's vocal, which it, it just swoops and glides in and out of it all. It's, it's just absolutely glorious. But what does it all mean? How was this ever a pop single? But this is this is what pop was like back then, and we accepted it. Ghost Town is a you know an explicably odd song when you start to pick at, pick at the edges of it. But this is just just it, yeah, it absolutely baffles me. And I've known this song, you know, it's 40 years since it came out and loved it then, love it now. I think I like it more now than I did then. And it, but I think it, because it is, I just keep coming back to it and thinking, how did they do this? Why? How can this exist? I just don't understand. There are um, certain names that I conflating my head when I'm thinking back through musical history and certain actors I used to mix up Ethan Hawke and Stephen Dorff all the time but then they look nothing alike and in my head I see the words uh Thomas Dolby and I also mix that up with the words Howard Jones because in my head there's a keyboard I don't know um this is one of the most 80s things I've ever heard in my life thank you very much what is the next it's track? Thomas Dolby's hyperactive Possibly the perf- the most perfectly named track of all the things we're looking at tonight, because it it start. I, I mean, I said before about Rocket being you know pretty full on, but you know this kind of equals it in terms of of energy. Um, it got to number seventeen, so you know quite a big hit, one one of his biggest, um, and it's basically the the story of of a boy who who is hyperactive he's kind of telling a story through the, the song of of his life um and he gets strapped to a machine at the age of 3 i'm not sure that's appropriate but um he wrote it apparently for michael jackson and when uh, he got no reply from michael he decided to record it himself i think it would have been quite good for prince actually i think prince could have done a great version of this but um yeah it's just one of those songs that really gets under my skin um and I don't know why, because it is quite annoying, but <laughs> I really... <laughs> I, st- I mean, you have... I mean, I will say, Gavin, you have bought all the earworms. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing if the track Popcorn had actually was possible that you'd have brought that one as well. <laughs> I love the the bass sound on it, that kind of popping bass uh, that comes in. And, the, I mean, there's a million different ideas in this. You know, it goes into so many different directions and, and you've got the 80s rap in there, obviously, which is always great. Um, I love the way the drums come in after about a minute because a lot of the time it's just um, Thomas and, and the kind of the, the bass sound popping away and then the tempo really goes up. I can see why people wouldn't like it, but as you said, it, it's an earworm and it's just one that I still I still really enjoy Um Again, like uh, Double Dutch, first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this is great. And, yeah, it's st- uh, to me it still sounds good now. Yeah, very 80s, very dated, 
but there's still something kind of charming about it and, and energetic. And how did you feel about this one, Si? Was it? Yeah, Simon, how did they put this together when you were listening to it and you were you were doing that thing of yeah, I mean this one, I, yeah, deconstructing one, uh, on the surface sounds more like a, a conventional song, and I, I can I can picture more the, how this one was recorded. Um, you know, a bit of very speed on the vocals to to make it sound like it's a bit more hysterical than, than it is when when the uh, female singer comes in. Um, but yeah, and it's got a trombone solo in there, which you don't expect in the middle of all the synths and whatnot. I mean, how, how do you feel about trombones? You and you know, they cast out with the saxes. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I mean, I quite like I quite like random brass, apart from when it's in that sort of like I said, okay. late nineties kind yeah. of thing. I mean, one of my fa- one of my favorite albums of all time is a, a Neutral Milk Hotel album, and, he ba- and all the brass in that sounds like. Drunk yes. brass. I like drunk brass. Yeah. I like that. Uh, and no, random trombone, great. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the trombone is an instrument that always makes me feel slightly giddy, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of, you yeah, know, just feeling inside me when I hear a trombone. It's like, ooh, ooh. Uh, and just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it's something to do with the intro of um, uh, Johnny Briggs, the, the, the kids' TV series. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah. For, 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 for the few American <laughs> listeners we do have, um, I don't bother. Yeah, well, it's, it. it's not, I, think, I think it is actually a piece of music that, that existed before. I think it's called the Acrobat or something like that. So people may know it. They just might associate it with Johnny Briggs or you know, uh, somebody sliding down a slide. But um, yeah, I think Thomas Dolby's a really interesting character. And I think um, his music was probably more played and more, more well-known than it was popular in the charts. I mean, I was looking, I was looking in my Guinness Book of British Hit Singles doing my research for this. And she blinded me with science, which came out in 82, which would have been the one that I'd have pulled for. Uh, That's the yeah. one. Um, <laughs> with uh, was it Magnus Pike on it? She blinded me with science. Um, that seems to be all over the place. You know, it was on kids' TV shows and always on the radio and stuff. Didn't even break the top 40. So I'm very surprised to to see that and i think hyperactive because it had quite a wacky video um that was on you know uh tv quite a lot it's a bit bit of a i think probably seen as a bit of a novelty um but now i think thomas dolby a very very clever guy uh, a brilliant musician and yeah just absolutely you know just, just that curiosity uh about you know, te- you know music technology and, and music but, but all fed through this kind of um, pop filter. And I've picked up a couple of his albums. I mean, you and you mentioned that we do uh, a show called Charity Shop Classics on the, on that their radio. And, um, and the, the idea of that is that we play music as bought in charity shops, you know, and, and that, that, is, that is our remit for the show. It's got to have come from a charity shop. And I've actually picked up uh, a couple of Thomas Dolby's albums from Chaz's um, over the years. And they're really, really good, well worth listening to. Um, the, the, there's a lot going on in them, a lot of substance to them that you might not necessarily get from uh, just listening to the, the, the songs that would have been in the charts. Um, one of the memories most people have of music, and we already talked about being great with pause buttons and whatnot, is, is making mixtapes. And one thing I've discovered by having guests on here is 
It's almost like saying, oh, can, oh, oh, here's a song I like. Um, can you make me a mix? And the guests would agonize and agonize over exactly the tracks and the order of the tracks. And our next track wasn't even in the first list. <laughs> um, I can't, it was, I can't remember who it was originally. How hard was it to pick your tracks and put them in order? Uh, well, so? um, <laughs> I think I initially had a, a long list of 13 songs and knowing that, you know, we were choosing five each. So, it, it, and three of them, I, you know, I definitely knew what they were going to be. So, you know, the, the other two were sort of like, you know, they, they, they kept changing. So initially when I sent my tracks across, to you both. So yeah, these are my five songs. Um, the my, my fourth song was going to be um, "Since Yesterday" by Strawberry Switchblade, and up until two days ago, that was still the case. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. <laughs> why did you? I, I, why did you change and not not in time for Gavin not to do some yeah, research? Sorry, Gavin. Sorry, you lost an hour of your life there. I do apologise. It's okay. I, it was spent listening to Strawberry Switchblade. It was fine. Yeah, uh, it'll come in useful one day. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it was when I came to making the notes and I was going through, and you know, I was sort of like, you know, got got a few sentences for each track, and it got to the Strawberry Switchblade song, and I kind of summed up everything that I wanted to say about it in one sentence. I thought, oh, that's not enough, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went back to my long list and uh, and then uh, chose, chose another track and one that, that kind of did, uh, it, you know, did have more to say about it. And, you know, I've, I've kind of, I tried to um, order our selections roughly uh, chronological, um, although we, we are jumping around the 80s a little bit. Um, but if you actually, you know, if you, if you took our selections separately, they would be in, in chronological order. But this one jumps right out of that chronology. It's um, B-52's Give Me Back My Man, which actually came out in 1980. Uh, it was from their second, second album, and uh, only got to the, uh, the well, got to the dizzy heights of number sixty-one in the uh, British hit parade back in the day. But in terms of the, uh, you know, uh, I've tried to pick songs or bands that I would have known in the eighties, and certainly, you know, uh, and songs that I would have known at the time. But I only became aware of B fifty twos in nineteen eighty-six when I think there was a compilation came out and Rock Lobster was back in the charts that year. So that, that was my introduction to them. And I was like, oh, this is weird. I, I, I think I like this. And uh, so this is this is why it falls into uh, 1986 for me, this one. Uh, I think my first impression of, of the B-52s was, this is like if the cast of Scooby-Doo had formed a band. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, and, and so I, I was always kind of intrigued by them. And... They're a band that I've, I've kind of uh, tried to like over the years. I really want to love the B-52s because there's, there's so much about them that I do like. But I think the, the thing that stops me is Fred. It just it gets on my wick a little bit, and and also the fact that the songs. Uh, I've got I've got a massive soft spot yeah. for Fred, and basically it's oh, mainly because 
if you get dragged up to do karaoke and you end up doing yeah. Love Shack, the Fred part is really easy if you can't sing. You just go, got me a car. I mean, it's really easy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't begrudge Fred his place in, in the band. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of like him to an extent. But there's there's just something that happens with a lot of B-52 songs where they, they get to a certain point and think, yeah, you've had the pop song element. And then it just goes off in a weird direction. You know, the Rock Lobster does that and... Uh, even Love Shack, you know, the, you know, the, the big floor filler of theirs does that. You know, it gets gets the whole kind of bang, bang, bang on the door, baby, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and and you know, I just get a little bit of a headache around those points in, in B-52 song. But Fred doesn't sing on this one so it's or, or talk on this one. So, so it's fine. It's just Cindy and um, all, all the better for it. And it doesn't do that weird turn either partway through and go, go off in another direction. So it's kind of... It kind of it starts uh, with this almost like kind of kraut rock motoric beat and and just keeps it up all the way through and that's the thing that that I really love about this song is it's kind of really hypnotic and, and addictive uh, with with that uh, spindly um, surf guitar riff that just goes th- all all the way through it and um, and Kate doing sort of like a, a synth synth bass part on it. So it's not real bass. It's um, um, Kate doing uh, like a dun 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 dun. Uh, so she's just as insistent as that that kind of motoric beat that's going on over it. And Cindy, um, the way she sings it, she she really elongates her words over the top of, of the beat, um, and, and it's almost like she she's slowing it all down as well. So it's like the song's moving. At, at two different speeds at the same time and until it gets to the end of the song when she she really lets rip and it's it's like this real cry this real emotional release um that, that comes at the end of the song where she's suddenly moving at the same speed uh, as the song uh and, and almost overwhelmed by it uh, i mean i've no idea what what it's about you know it's, it's, it's just pleading with with the seagulls to, to give her back her man that that's that's all i know about it really it's one of them i'm just trying to fathom out what's it about i really don't know what's it what it's about but there's a great video if you look it up on on uh, youtube uh, a tv performance from um a show called top pop which was like the dutch top of the pops and i think that the band actually ended up using this as the, the promo clip but just turn it into black and white um, but it's, so, um, Cindy's on there, um, the miming to the song, but she's, she's still giving it her all as is Fred. He's doing this really nice kind of, uh, little dance to, to the side of her, um, and looking quite serious about it all. But, um, but yeah, you know, she's just, this, she's barefoot and she's just a, this little sparrow of a girl with, with the big, you know, the big hair, the big B-52's hair. But you really, really feel for her, you know, the way that she's belting it out, even though she's miming. And um, and th- this is a song that I only came to probably about five or six years ago. But um, I wish I'd, you know, maybe I had encountered it previously. I don't know. But it was just, you know, th- the right time arrived in my life for me to, you know, love this song. And I do absolutely love it. I just find it absolutely hypnotic and addictive. Gavin, I mean, for me, when I listen to this, I could, if you'd said to me, name which part, which year of the 80s this track came from, I, I couldn't have told you. Oh, right, you. okay. I mean, I mean, when, when you said, Simon, for example, this was right, this was going back to 1980, okay, all right, could have been, could have been 85. I mean, it doesn't sound of its time I, in that way. I think way. it sounds very kind of new wave to me. I think it sounds like very much the definition of new wave. So definitely early 80s, I think, in the sound. Because later on the B fifty two sounded a, a bit more polished. It's a bit rawer, isn't it, than 
Yeah, you well, know, it's love after, shaking. After. Oh yeah, but I don't, I don't mean in terms of their. Yeah. I don't mean in terms of their discography. I mean just in terms of. Yeah, no, no, but I, I think just just the production on it and the sound of it. I, yeah, I think it sounds. You know, very eight between eight. If I didn't know it, I'd I would say between eighty and eighty two. I think. I, I am often wrong. <laughs> no, I'm older than you as well. So, I am often wrong. <laughs> and I mostly listen to music from the 1980s, so I think that gives me uh, a bit of an advantage. Um, I really like that that weird sound on it. I don't know if it's like a, I don't know what it is. It sounds like popcorn popping in a massive metal vat in an echo ch- chamber. That what's it's going on there? It's the same. Oh right, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it's produced by Rec Davis, who produced. Um, he worked started out as an engineer, but he worked with um, Roxy Music and, and Brian Eno. Um, so he's very, you know, as well as being a very kind of um, skillful and slick producer, he's also very, um, you know, up to doing you know, doing experiments and stuff because he worked on um, Brian Eno's. Uh, sort of mid 70s stuff onwards and, and and did the stuff with Roxy Music kind of from 79 to 82, so Manifesto, Fashion Blood, Avalon. So uh, it's, I guess you know, the, the, the art rock side of it, and I think the B-52s was sort of mixing that sort of surf guitar sort of thing with, with Yoko Ono um, kind of atonal um, stuff. Um, and I think that you know that that first iteration of, of the B-52s, I think, is really interesting. When um, Ricky Wilson, um, Cindy's brother, was was still in the band, still alive, um, because that's where all those really kind of odd riffs that that drive the songs, that are the central part of the songs, come from. They they, they come from him. Um, this this so I just, I just want to come on to something you you just mentioned the sort of art rock type thing um on a, on a previous pod when we, we did when we did Britpop we talked about how basically Britpop started off as art pop and then by the end of a scene it had developed into something else and it almost sounds like a lot of these synth bands or a lot of these new wave bands that we are talking about as pop started off as some sort of art pop. Yeah, I think they they come from a time when bands weren't afraid to change their sound, very much taking the lead from what Bowie and Roxy had done in in, in the seventies, where it, it it would change every album, and I think they they influenced so many so many other bands that came after them, gave them the the confidence to to do that, to you know, right, we've done this, well now let's try this. Yeah, we tend to think of bands now, uh, or well, certainly solo singers now, because you don't get bands now, do you really? <laughs> but pop in, in pop music terms of this is what we do, and this is what we what we always do. We don't break the formula. You know, I ha- hate to bring around, you know, men- mention bands like this, but like, you know, did you ever hear any change in the sound of like Take That or Boyzone or Westlife? They they just got their pop formula from the beginning, and they stayed like that all the way through. But but is that is that also because a lot of those bands that you just mentioned and a lot of the later pop was manufactured and put together by someone else for a purpose? Whereas a lot of the bands we've talked about, they yes, were bands. They, they were bands. You know, and, they were. Um, I mean, there was still you know manufactured pop and stuff. You know, how much did the Bay City Rollers sound change in in the seventies? But then you look at someone like Midyear, who started out in a essentially manufactured uh, pop band, you know, to, to be a Bay City Rollers replacement, but then moved on, you know, to be someone who played, you know, <laughs> playing hard rock guitar with Thin Lizzy, but also uh, doing Visage and Ultravox. Um, I think that, that, that there was, 
uh, more uh, acceptance of change, I think, in pop music then. We didn't expect our pop artists to be just putting out the same thing time after time. They weren't afraid to break the formula. So I think that's that's right, you know, with with Britpop. And you know, when you think of um, Suede and Blur, it is that kind of art rock uh, coming from a kind, kind of glammy sort of thing. Uh, and then, but then, you know, it reduced to being formulaic by, you know, knuckle draggers like Oasis. So, you know. So, if, I mean, obviously we banded about different titles for this uh, wonky pop, overlooked pop, lost pop, and we ended up with 80s pop nuggets and the idea that these were not massive tracks that would ever appear on a compilation. Um, I looked at the next track and went, what? But this is a massive track, surely. I mean, unless it's just massive in my head, and because I have fond memories, um, what, 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 what have we got, Gavin? What have we got? Because this is not some lost, obscure track You're going to walk like an Egyptian with the bangles. The, one of the biggest <laughs> tracks of the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take your point. Um, unlike Sai, who, you know, I think spent many hours uh, next to a candle, you know, dipping his, his quill in the ink and uh, coming up with a large scroll of potential things, I was just like, I'm just going to choose stuff that, that I like and I haven't thought about for a while. And then I, I chose this and then, yeah, I did think after I picked it, ah, uh, it is quite well known. But then I thought it was only a kind of a loose general concept anyway. <laughs> and it was also stuff, stuff I that I, you know, that I, I liked and I thought was an, an interesting and there's still a kind of a strange element to the song, even though it was a big hit. So what the hell? We're having it anyway. What I've done with this one is I've just come up with um ten things I like about it. So rather than just, you know, do do a kind of a, a manifesto for why why this song is it's just ten. Is one of those ten? Is one of those ten things going? Oh, because that's that's, that's, that's one it's of my number six. Way oh way oh oh way oh. Okay. <laughs> so okay, what, what's uh, your ten? What's your what's your MSG ten? So uh, number one, as I've already said, just incredibly immediate song. First time I heard it as a kid, I was like, "This is great! It's really super catchy." Number two. The weird bong at the beginning, I've put brackets, some kind of bell, question mark. The fact that they all get a verse to sing, which I think is quite nice, except Debbie, she doesn't. Uh, the machine gun noise in it, you know, that, that bit, doo, 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 bah, 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 bah. I like that. The uh, synthesized whistling, again, like skipping ropes, not enough synthesized whistling in uh, pop these days. Number six, way oh, way oh, oh, way oh. Uh, number seven, the lyric, all the school kids, so sick of books, they like the punk and the metal band. Very much taken with that line. Number eight, the bit where it all stops when they sing the title. You know, it all goes quiet. And they go, walk like an Egypt. That's a lovely moment. Just all these little moments, I think, kind of knit together to make a lovely tune. Uh, number nine, I'm not generally a big fan of guitar solos, but this one is great. It's not as good as a sax solo. I mean, you know, it could have been a sax solo, <laughs> Ewan, right? But I think it's actually a decent guitar solo. And number 10, the lyrics are just ridiculous. <laughs> When you look at them, <laughs> and I like it for that as well. So here endeth my, you know, my reasons. No, it's an absolute. It is an absolute. It's an absolute classic. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of of most men my age had a thing for Susanna Hoff at some point uh, in the eighties. Um, I know that Eternal Flame was 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 so much big, but I think this was. I remember this coming out. I think I bought this on seven inch. 
Um, it's, oh, it's it's wonderful. Um, Simon, I mean, you 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 brought to us some nice, obscure, well well thought out list. Gavin just slapped Boom. down a banger. Yeah, he just he just filled the dance floor. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I played this at a kid's party, my daughter's party, when she was oh, about seven or eight or something like that. Uh, it was in a, um, we were doing like a. Uh, is is that is that a burn? Is that? A, oh yeah, great time. I played it at a kids' yeah, party. It, uh, yeah, I played it. It was an Egyptian themed party. I think we we're doing like a. It was a mystery party. It was like a mummy mystery. So you know, who who you know stole the mummy or something? I can't remember now. Um, so we had teams of kids working it all out. But to get them in the mood, played uh, this and uh, Egyptian reggae by Jonathan Richmond, and both went down an absolute storm. So I, I you know. Kids love it. I loved it as a kid. They love it now. <laughs> I think, okay, so the last one and the next one are probably the only two out of this 10 that I remember buying the album myself. Um, and also we've talked about a lot of um, the pop artists of the 80s. They came from somewhere else. They came from either post-punk or they came from... Um, two-tone or, or whatnot. Uh, our next artist um, was originally in the band Rip, Rig and Panic, who appeared without her after she'd left on uh, The Young Ones. Um, and this was this was also a massive album. What, what are we finishing on? Uh, we're finishing on Manchild by Nana Cherry. Was this, I, 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 in my head, I had the album and I couldn't tell you whether this had been a single or not. I, there was the you know, Buffalo Stance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why this one? Um, yeah, it was a single. came out in uh, May 1989. Uh, Guinness Book of British Hit Singles tells me that it gets to number five. Uh, why this one? I, I still remember the first time I heard this. It was at the um, my school youth club. And I didn't go there very often. I was always very, too too scared. I was just intimidated by all the lads and stuff. I wasn't the sporty lad. I was just always at home listening to music and that. But for some reason, I'd gone to the youth club and uh, I just remember this coming on the telly. I, I don't know what program was on. Maybe they put a, a videotape on the chart show or something like that. And they were, they were just playing that back in the youth club. But the video was on. I just Remember it, I, remember, I had a bit of a crush on Nana Cherry anyway, after Buffalo Stance. Uh, so I, was, I just remember these strings, the, the, the beats, that, the, so the hip-hop beats coming across, and then the strings. I'm thinking that they didn't go together, that that was a really odd combination of things. Uh, and just being kind of mesmerized by it. Now, at this time... Hip hop wasn't really on my radio. I wasn't radar. I wasn't into dance music or anything like that. Uh, I, I was full on guitar kid. Uh, I mean, the stuff that I was listening to at the time: Guns and Roses, The Cure, um, very much into REM. And I was a massive Bowie fan. And this is when the first Tim Machine album came out. All all around this time. So, you know, I wasn't listening to music like Nana Cherry, but I was still watching Top of the Pops every week. Like I said, I, I like Buffalo Stance. Uh, so there's just something that about this uh, that, that really cut through and I found um, confusing about it, but also really intriguing. And I was just starting to understand at this point how uh, songs worked, how they were put together, how, you know, chords would go, uh, you know, one chord would follow another and you got a major and a minor, things like that. Um, but this was just a really unusual chord structure of, of things that didn't really 
kind of fit together. Just yeah, her vocals make it work, but if you listen to the the strings that are carrying the chords in the verse, it's, it's just like it's, it's almost like these these atonal uh, sheets of of noise that that are coming through. Um, but and I was listening to it the other day, and I, I think I find this hard to believe that it's it's over thirty years old. It still sounds very contemporary, more so than Buffalo Stance, which sounds very of its time. Um, but but like, the- I think I think there was a there's a weird thing about eighty nine. Um, I mean, eighty nine was probably the year that I I think it was the year that I developed the music taste that became what I have now. Um, but eighty nine was it was Nana Cherry. It was um uh soul to soul um these were the the big hits and and even for me at the time it was like oh i appreciated them as pop songs i really liked them and then i started that it was a year i started getting into public enemy and then indie stuff and alternative stuff but for me nana cherry and soul to soul i'm, I'm sure back to life was around yeah, about the same uh, time nelly hooper was well. with both of them and and uh, and it was a lot of the same people going to work with massive attack and actually 3d from massive attack gets a writing credit on Manchild. He, he co-wrote the rap that's in there. And it was you know, a good year or so before um, the album came out. She references Massive Attack and Buffalo Stands hanging out with the Wild Bunch, which was how they were known uh, before um, being Massive Attack. So I think this kind of points the way forward to the whole sort of trip-hop thing, the Bristol scene. Uh, you know, really a good five years before we even knew it as, as being a scene. Um, but I think, yeah, Nana Cherry, um, yeah, an artist that really I shouldn't have liked at the time. She just wasn't the sort of thing that I was listening to. But she she just cut through all that. There's a there's um you know something uh, an integrity and and an intelligence that comes through from the her her music and her songs that just really cut through uh, and and uh, really appealed to me. And and I still you know love what she does now you know the album that she released uh what was it about three years ago that she did with um fortet that was brilliant and so i think you know she's she's got a really um uh unique voice and, and an important voice in music and one that's um you know despite the you know music genre that i wouldn't have listened to back then I'm much more open-minded now uh, but i wouldn't have listened to back then because i was just an absolute guitar snob uh, I've got I've got really upset by I'd rather Jack by uh, rather Jack than Fleetwood Mac by the Reynolds Girls. <laughs> How dare they? Um, but yeah, she she's just someone I think just really cut through and just her music is always um, yeah just really um, struck a chord with me. I think this 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 one still does. It's it's odd. It's unusual. It shouldn't work. I think the uh, the strings were arranged by um, Will Malone, who's got, gone on to work with lots of people over the years but in the early 70s if you're a, a fan of british horror films he did the soundtrack to the film deathline uh which has got a really odd theme tune and uh, and you'll never hear the words mind the gap the same again if you've seen the film <laughs> i'm just i'm just realizing i mean i said at the beginning a couple of the tracks that i would have loved to be on the list ones that i didn't say were uh the rebel mc street tough and hey you the rock steady crew show us what you do make a make make a make a break make a move um i think i just really liked u.s rap 80s pop <laughs> or mm. rap influenced <laughs> 80s pop and now I, I i thought this name cherry album was amazing when it came out um gavin what were you, what were you listening to in 1989 
not Nana Cherry, to be honest, although I've come to uh, to like this album very much since. Um, 1989, I mean, I, w- I was a student at um, Poly by then, so it was The Wonder Stuff, The Wedding Present, The Cure, Morrissey, no. you know, kind Wait, of the, the, indie the, student. The Wonder Stuff were my gateway indie band. <laughs> <laughs> I randomly picked up a cassette from Whitmarine's public library of the eight-legged groove machine. Uh, I went, I have no idea what this is. I'm going to take it home and have a listen. And because they were relatively local, uh, that was my that was my in. <laughs> yeah, they, that was a big album for me in that first year at um, at Poly. But um, no, I mean, what's really interesting about this record? I mean, I, I guess it's the first time most of us would have heard that kind of trip hop sound. I mean, it, it's not. It's not pure hip hop, uh, trip hop in the way that it kind of developed, but it certainly it's got all the seeds there, hasn't it? You know, um, and lyrically, I think it's an amazing song as well because she really, it's a very tender and sweet song about this guy whose life isn't really working out, and it's, it's very thoughtful and poignant, and so as as well as the way the the music works together and the way she sings. Um, you know that line, turn around and ask yourself, turn around and ask yourself. It's, it's just so beautiful. It's a lovely little, very subtle little um, hook in there. Um, I've lost the thread of what I was just saying. Lyrically, man child. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's got these incredible lyrics and then just, just this beautiful, it just kind of glides along so, so beautifully, the whole song. You know, there's nothing like really kind of challenging and, and, um, difficult about it musically in a way but then there kind of is in that it's it's kind of it's got the strings and the kind of low-key hip-hop beats and yeah it's yeah it's a great song what i also really like about it is the fact that you know buffalo stance had been a a really big uh hit but she avoided the temptation just to follow it up with buffalo stance part two which would have been the easy thing to do and you know, a lot of people and a lot of bands and fair play i mean why wouldn't you if you've you've had a hit particularly after she'd been on the music scene for quite a while i mean she'd initially started with the slits you know she did some stuff with the slits back in i don't know sort of 82 83 i think so she'd she'd been around a while and uh, you know you can see the temptation might have been to oh well i've had one big hit i'll just churn another one out but she did this which is really groundbreaking so Fair play to Nana, I say. Okay, so we've had well, we've we've had nine eighties nuggets and the bangles walk like an Egyptian, um, which would be an eighties classic banger, which I'm very happy with because it's still going on in my head. Um, Simon Gavin of the Giddy Carousel of Pop and Charity uh, Shop Classics. Thank you for coming on, uh, both of you. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. And Gavin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and a blast. Um, if you are listening, um, please uh, find, uh, I, I think both Charity Shop Classics and Giddy Carousel, are they both on Mixcloud? Is it just Charity Shop Classics? Charity Shop Classics you'll find on Mixcloud. Giddy Carousel of Pop you'll find wherever you get podcasts from. So if you've got a podcast app on your phone or just search for it on the in- that internet thing. Uh, and you'll you'll find it there. You know, find sort us of, on... around about I think twenty or so episodes of that, and uh, I think there's, there's nearly four hundred editions of Charity Shop Classics. So <laughs> it's been going a while, and there's a lot of records in Charity Shop. So you know. But if you want to find us both on find both of those on Twitter, they're easily searchable. Brilliant. Okay. Well, um, 
that's basically it. Um, none of the, the tracks I would have put on my 80s list turned up, but... Come on, what, what would you have put <laughs> on yours? Come on. Well, like I said, there, I would have had Keep Ground on the Coconuts, um, Stool Pigeon. Um, I'd have had New Shoes, Let's Go All The Way. Sly, no, New Shoes, I Can't Wait. Sly Fox, Let's Go All The Way. Uh, Street Tough by The Rebel MC. Um, which, incidentally, I was sad enough to be able to rap from start to finish when I was a child. No, I was really, really proud of myself. Um, you wear street stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right like an inch, stand like a bee. Um, At least it wasn't hanging stuff like <laughs> kids on the block. <laughs> no, it, can you can you still do street stuff, you? Uh, yes, it's the Rebel MC. Come on, give yeah. us a bit of street stuff. I, I, I probably can't. Yes, I'm the Rebel MC. Rock like an inch, stand like a bee. Back by public demand. Yeah, rocking with a one-man band. Go with the flow moves. Yeah. If if I give me a day, <laughs> all right. <too> late. <laughs> um, and, and you, listener, thank you very much. Um, again, you know where we are by now, and we will see you next time. Um, bye. <laughs>